We are in Romans chapter 5. That's where we're going to be uh, for our lesson this morning. And we've been, we've been going through Romans for the last few weeks, and we've been looking not only at the book of Romans, but particularly the book of Romans with a view towards what it means to live life together. And that's really, I think, the central issue that Paul is grappling with throughout the book of Romans. There is deep theology in the book, but theology isn't just for people who sit on an armchair with an open Bible thinking about doctrines and dogmas. Theology also has real practical value for the life of the church. Theology is supposed to motivate and transform the way that we live. And so Paul's theology about how to uh, understand the gospel and the gift of God through Jesus Christ that brings about reconciliation, it's not only for us to sit and to think about, even though that's a good thing to do, it's also something that's supposed to motivate us to understand how that impacts our relationships. And one of the primary reasons that Paul does this, and one of the primary ways he demonstrates how it impacts our relationships, is that it removes the barriers that would otherwise be between us. For example, Jews and Gentiles. There are plenty of reasons for barriers there. Jews had the law, Gentiles didn't have the law. There were uh, conceptions about the morality or immorality of the other group, where Jews looked down on the Gentiles because of their paganism, because of their idolatry, and all of the sins that were uh, a part of that way of life. And you would have Gentiles who would feel unaccepted and unwelcomed by the Jews and, and maybe in hostility turn against them. And you would have these sorts of, of attitudes. And yet in the church, the focus of the gospel is, yes, salvation, but it's also creating a people who are saved. It's the formulation of, of, a, of a community of people from different walks of life who without Christ would have nothing to do with one another. But now in Christ, they're welcomed together into one family. And you have to try to figure out a way, how do we get these people who are so different in so many ways to be one family at one table? And so chapter after chapter throughout Romans, as he's demonstrating there's actual remarkable unity in each of these barriers that you've set up is now removed in Christ. You might say, well, the, the pagans are sinners. And Paul says, yeah, but Kind of, we all are, you know. Uh, you can look down and you can look at the Gentiles and say, oh, you've done horrible things. But then he says, but you, the Jews, you've done all of the same things. And you can say, well, we're different because we have the law. And he says, does the law really make you different if you don't keep it? Because you're right, you, you have had the law, but you haven't always done it. Sometimes you have, but guess what? The Gentiles haven't had the law. And yet, even though they didn't have a written law in their conscience and in their minds, they have done the things that God has wanted them to do sometimes. And so you've both sometimes done right things, but you've also both completely done what was wrong. And so the law didn't really make you all that different. And so the law isn't something you should boast about. And the same thing with circumcision, which we've talked about the last couple of weeks. That wasn't something that separated you. As a matter of fact, there is none that is righteous. No, not one, because all of you have sinned and all of you fall short of the glory of God. Now, if the book ends right there, it's kind of a downer, but that's not where the book of Romans ends. Uh, we're early on in the book at that point. He then begins to talk about how it is that even though you've been united together in sinfulness, regardless of whether you've had the law or you've had circumcision, sin is what has united you. You also are united in your justification, not based on Torah, 
not based on the observance of certain practices of the law, not based on circumcision, not even based on your performance, but rather based on the faithfulness of Jesus who in his obedience to God gave himself for you so that when you put your faith in Christ, you enter into that covenant relationship with God. And so through faithfulness to Christ, we enter into his faithfulness to God and that unites us. And that's something that you do whether you're Jew or Gentile. That's something you can do whether you've had the law or not had the law. That's something you can do whether you've been circumcised or not circumcised. And in our day and age, I think the same thing is true. We have all sinned, and that unites us in rebellion against God. And yet our hope is found in Jesus. And that hope is found in the sacrifice and in the death of Jesus. And if that's the case, then all of the thousand things that may separate us or that may divide us, whether it be our age or our uh, uh, generation that we live in, you can you see so many things about, well, this is the way that the boomers are, but this is the way that Gen Z is, and, and everyone in between, and millennials and Gen X and all that stuff. And, and we like to categorize things, or we categorize based on race, or we categorize based on money, or we categorize based based on education levels, or we categorize based on all these things, and we say that these ones are the top, and these ones are the bottom, and these people are better than these people, and yet in Christ, all of those things are eliminated as any sort of means of superiority or justification. Justification is not found in your greatness. Justification is not found in how impressive you are. Justification is found in the faithfulness of Jesus, and that is our only hope, and so we are united together no matter what you, who you are or where you've been, you're united in Christ as your only hope. So Paul has been making this point, and it's a really good point. But then he wants to talk about, okay, so if that's really true, and that's why you've become a Christian, then how does that impact your boasting? How does that impact the way that you view and speak about yourself and what truly matters? You know, boasting is something that... Uh, that we do as they did. Uh, there are some historical and, and, and cultural differences. Like boasting was actually uh, a part of an honor-shame culture in ancient Rome. Uh, there are actually writings on how to boast in such a way that you get the point across about your greatness and you can maybe even move up in people's minds, but you don't come across as someone who is self-serving or someone who's arrogant because you can, boasting, you have to walk a fine line of impressing people but not giving them the wrong taste in their mouths about you. Uh, well, Paul is going to completely reshape the way that they talk about boasting. But boasting, while it's something that pretty much all of us view it as a negative word, like none of us walk around saying that we want to boast about ourselves, we do often find subtle ways to do it. Uh, social media is, is a way that people try to subtly boast, or a humble brag, or, you know, different ways of, of showing your goodness, your cleverness, your uh, impressiveness, your, your achievements, and, and hoping that people then generate good opinions about you because of those things. That's, that's innately human to do. Um, but we can sometimes, in our boasting, create those same type of hierarchies and create those same type of levels that Paul is trying to destroy and that are eliminated in Christ and in the gospel. I love, I love Philippians 3, where Paul actually does for a minute boast in the flesh. He lists some of his accomplishments and some of the things that might set him above. But then he says that every one of those things is now rubbish in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. It's like, not only does he consider those things lost, he has actually lost those things, and he considers them to be something that wasted his time, because the one thing that truly matters more than anything else is Christ himself. 
And so, and so all of these things that we might have, it, it impacts our boasting. And if you have a church like the church in Rome, where you have Jews and Gentiles, boasting is an actually really important practical issue to discuss. So when you get to Romans chapter 5, he begins to talk about, okay, so if we're all sinners, if none of us are made great because of the law, if none of us are superior because of our circumcision, and if our only hope is in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who has united us with one another, how do we boast then? How are we supposed to boast? If boasting is going to be a part of our lives, what should it be about and how should we do it? If you look at Paul's language of boasting up to this point, it has so far been negative. Things that we shouldn't boast in or things that we've been made a fool for boasting in. Uh, for example, Romans 2, 23 and 24. He's talking uh, to his Jewish brothers, and he says, You who boast or exult, we'll talk about the, that word here in a second, uh, in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's talking about those who have the law, and he says, Okay, let's say you have the law, and you're going to boast in that. The law is a good thing, so boast in the law. But what happens when you do that? You might have the law, but you're you're breaking the law. You're not actually doing all of the things that the law commands you to do. And so through your breaking of the law, you're dishonoring God, and the very thing in which you boast about becomes the thing by which the Gentiles blaspheme God because of you. And so your boasting in the law is really kind of a foolish thing because you're boasting in the very thing that is causing others to blaspheme God. So don't boast in the law. The law is not actually something you're going to uh, have much luck boasting in. When you look at uh, Romans 3, 27, Get Romans 3.27. I don't have it on the screen, but you'll just look in your Bible really fast. Um, Paul, after making this point, this point about justification that we've been making, he finally gets to some of his concluding remarks when he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. It's like you can't boast in the law. You can't boast in your works. In fact, in chapter 4, he's going to talk about Abraham as being someone who had righteousness credited to him on faith before circumcision and apart from works of the law. And so he goes on to say uh, in verse 4, or sorry, verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. That little phrase right there, but not before God, is actually an interesting point. Because sometimes with all of our boasting, boasting is comparative. It's like we boast because we consider ourselves to be better than someone else who's next to us. But if we actually compared ourselves to Christ or to God, we would come to realize that all of our boasting amounts to just utter nonsense. You know, all of our boasting is, is completely frivolous and foolish. You know, it, it would be like, like in order to, uh, imagine we, I actually heard this illustration before. I saw someone physically do it. I'm not going to call anyone up here. But he called two people up and he had them jump next to each other to see who could jump the highest. They had to jump and touch how high they could on the wall. Ooh, we got a basket right there. We thought you could see who can dunk it or something. Uh, and, uh, and you jump, you see, and you like afterwards, like one person jumped like a good six inches higher than the other person, right? So they were clearly better, right? Um, but if the goal or if the only means of jumping properly were to actually jump and touch the moon, you would say that like, okay, our little four, five, six inch differences among ourselves that amounts to nothing when actually in comparison to what, for example, Christ has done. Uh, when it comes to Christ's faithfulness to God, we can compare, well, I've done this and I've done this, but we've all done 
nothing in comparison to the one who has actually done it all. So we might boast among ourselves, but there's no boasting before God. There, there's no boast, like, like, if I were to, to throw a football well in my backyard and then brag to Patrick Mahomes about it, like, that would be a silly thing to do because he's much better at that than me. Um, if I were to accomplish some act of righteousness and then consider myself superior because of it, I'm clearly not thinking about God or Jesus in that moment. Because in comparison to them, what am I? I am a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. And so boasting is completely eliminated with that respect. But when you get to Romans chapter 5, he does start to tell you what you can boast in. So he, he's pretty negative about boasting. He shows the, the Ill, how it's illogical. He shows how the law doesn't give you something to boast in. And certainly your works don't give you something to boast in. And your righteousness is no means of boasting. But there are things that we can boast in as Christians. In Romans chapter 5, he begins with the passage that was just read a moment ago. Therefore, having been justified by faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faithfulness into this grace in which we stand. So we stand in grace through the faithfulness which has, uh, uh, which has given us peace with God. And those are all beautiful and wonderful ideas. And then he says at the end of that, and we boast or exult in the hope of the glory of God. So if we're going to boast in something, we're not going to boast in our performance. We're not going to boast in our own greatness. You boast in God. And I think it's also important to note, or the hope of the glory of God, it's important to note that he doesn't say we boast in our relationship with God being superior to someone else's relationship with God. Again, he doesn't make it a means of comparison to another person. But what he's saying is if you're going to rejoice or exalt or boast in something, have it be the hope that you have in God himself. The word boast is the—these are the same word. So in my Bible, when you get to chapter 5, my, my English Bible doesn't actually use the word boast anymore. It has used it earlier in Romans, but once it gets to chapter 5, it switches it to the word exalt. Because exalt is a better way of talking about what you do with God. Uh, you know, it's like, well, I exalt God. I don't boast. Uh, because we think of boast as having a negative connotation. So whenever he's talking about sinful stuff, he used, the, the English translators use the word boast. Whenever it's talking about what we should do with God, it changes it to the word exalt. But the Greek word is actually the same, and that's one of the reasons why I, I, I think it's important to note that he's, he's making a point about this word, and he's ruling out any sort of boasting that would exalt our superiority over someone else's. And the only boasting we do is that which elevates and, and rejoices in the superiority of God himself. And so what he mentions here is that we boast in hope of the glory of God. And that hope is something we can have even through the most difficult trials, because the hope that we have came through trials. Like it came through the sufferings of Jesus and the faithfulness of Jesus. And so boasting in hope is, is uh, deeply connected to the idea of boasting through tribulation, which is the second thing he tells us to boast in. Romans, 3, or Romans 5 is going to give us three different things to boast in. One of them is boasting in the hope of the glory of God. The next is boasting in our tribulations. So the next couple of verses he says, and not only this, so not only do we boast in the hope of the glory of God, but also we boast in our tribulations. Now in an honor-shame culture, that is not what you would boast in. You would not boast in your struggles or in your weaknesses or in the things that have looked like failures or the things that have caused hardship. You would boast in your successes, in your, the ways that you've been elevated over someone else, in the ways that you have demonstrated how, how well you handle this life. But we as Christians, because our Lord is the crucified Lord, 
we boast in our tribulations. And we have a different perspective on tribulation because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character, hope. So remember he said we boast in the hope of the glory of God, but we also boast in our tribulations because we know that that will, in a roundabout way, bring us to hope. And the hope does not disappoint. There are so many things and so many people in this world that if you put your hope in them, you'll find yourself disappointed. There are places you may visit, or there are uh, bucket list items that you've dreamed about your whole life, and then you go and you see it, and maybe it doesn't live up to expectation. Or there's someone who you've trusted and you've put your faith in, and they end up letting you down. What we have when we have hope in God is we have something which will never disappoint because it's rooted in something that is never fickle and that never goes away. It's because it's rooted in the love of God, which has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Our hope comes through tribulation, but our hope is rooted and founded and, and based upon the very love of God himself. And it's right after this expression about the love of God that Paul launches into a couple verse discussion about how we actually know and can see the love of God. He talks about the fact that God has demonstrated his love for us. And so you get this beautiful paragraph about what the love of God has actually done. And in this paragraph, he talks about the love of God was extended to us, not because of our obedience to law, not because of our circumcision, not because of our, uh, the ways that we have been excellent or we have excelled over others or that we've been Jew or that we've been Gentile or that we've been rich or we've been whatever. Those are not the things that caused the love of God to be demonstrated for us. It wasn't because he owed us anything. As a matter of fact, if you look at the language uh, that is used for who God has demonstrated his love for throughout, you see that it is the helpless. When you read uh, in verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the godly and deserving. He died for us, and we're the ungodly. It says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so this section is describing the depths of the love of God that came for not a deserving people, but for a people who were helpless, ungodly sinners who were very, very enemies of God. But we serve and worship a God who loves even his enemies, and that is our only hope at reconciliation. So what do we exalt in? Well, the next thing he mentions, this is the very next verse, and he says, and not only this, this is the other thing that we boast or exult in, but we also boast or exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received this reconciliation. And so we, we, we can rejoice or exalt or boast in the hope of the glory of God because that ultimately is the production of our tribulation. So we can boast even in our tribulation and our common suffering and hardship and failures together because that will lead us to hope, which will lead us to God himself. And it's through that that we actually see and experience the love of God. And when he talks about reconciliation here, 
He then does something to show, and this is dramatic, and this is an awesome rest of chapter 5. He talks about how deeply God's plan to bring about reconciliation has changed everything. It's changed everything. We live in a whole new world because of God's plan for reconciliation. Because the world that we have lived in, who's the first man? Adam. You know, you go back to Genesis 1. You have the story of Adam. And what does Adam bring into the world? Adam brings in sin, and Adam brings in death. And sin and death have been the story of mankind from that point forward. If you look at Adam, you see sin and death brought into this world, and you see that all human beings have contributed. And so, I mean, that's what his first couple chapters about. <laughs> we all have sinned. We have all sinned in the manner and in the likeness of Adam. That is something that we have all contributed to, to the downfall and the death and the ruin of this world through sin. And yet, what is our hope of eternal life? We hope for the age to come, life with God and the resurrection, when we're raised from the dead and we live with God forever. You know what's incredible about that resurrection? One man has already done it. Who is the first man of resurrection life? Who is the first man of, who's been raised to glory for the age to come? Jesus. Adam was the first man of this world, but Jesus is the Adam of the age to come and of the resurrection. And you know what has happened through Jesus? The story of bringing sin into the world has been utterly and completely transformed so that Jesus brings righteousness into the world. Adam brought sin into this world and death through sin. And yet Jesus comes into this world, lives a perfect life, suffers the death that Adam brought into this world, but then conquers it through the resurrection so that we now have, for the age to come, a better Adam with a new story and a whole new world. The story of creation is utterly transformed in the person of Jesus himself. And again, that's not something that I did. That's something that he has done. And so the reconciliation that we have with God comes because there's a whole new story taking place with a whole new Adam and a whole new world is on the horizon. And while we might not be at that world yet, the opportunity to be saved into that world is available for every one of us right now because one man brought sin and death and the other man brought righteousness, justification, and reconciliation. And so what is it that we boast in? Well, I didn't do this and you didn't do this. Uh, we have gone the Adam route by and large, but by the faithfulness of Jesus, we've been accepted into his brand new world. When we put our faith in Christ, when we give our allegiant obedience to him, we enter into this world of life and the love of God and the reconciliation. And it happened for us, not because we earned it or because of some mark in the flesh that made us superior. It happened while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were helpless. And so, how shall we boast? Well, we don't boast in the law, which we failed to keep. We don't boast in our performance, which uh, will, will never bring about the justification of the righteousness of God. But we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in tribulations, and we boast in God through Jesus Christ, who brings about reconciliation. And you know what those, those have in common? If we were to boast in our law, then some of us would be able to boast, and others wouldn't. If we were to boast in some performance in the flesh, then some of us would be able to, and some of us wouldn't. If we were to boast because of, of, of any number of things that are different between us, then again, that creates further separation. But the things that we're called to boast in are the things that every one of us can lift up our voices together in the praise of God in. They're the things that unite us. 
It's like when, when a community soccer team or football team or whatever wins, wins the match and you all sing songs together. It's like that's an act of unity where because of someone else's victory, you are united together in joy and in celebration. When we gather together and we sing songs as the people of God about who God is, those are not done to elevate us. They're done to elevate God and to be for his glory. And in that, we lift him up together in unity with one another. Boasting separates unless that boasting draws us together to boast in the only one who can be boasted or exalted inappropriately, which is God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we bring the lesson to the close, here's the life together challenge. This week, I want you to consider afresh your tribulations in light of Christ and in the new world in which we now live. Tribulation will happen, and yet that's one of those things. It's one of those things that we're called to boast in together. It's something that we can help each other through. It's something that can actually unite us because there is tribulation in this world. There's hardship, there's pain, there's suffering, there's grief, there's sickness. And what that does is it can draw us together as a community of Christ in the love of God to lift one another up, to be there for one another, to help one another as we live now in view of that glorious age which is to come, an age with a new Adam, an age of reconciliation, an age of forgiveness, and an age of salvation. And if we can help you do that, please let it be known. If there's anyone who would like uh, to name Christ as Lord of your life and have your sins washed away in baptism, please let that be known. We could do that right now, here, today. You have that opportunity. If there's anyone here who would like the prayers or the help of this church, we would be more than willing to pray for you and gather with you. If, if you have a need, please let it be known, uh, whether you're watching online or whether you're here, whether you want to meet with one of the elders in the back or come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.